From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 127, and I'm sitting down with Cody Crane, a podcaster known for the Spook Podcast. And we're going to watch a film together. So we're sitting down to watch Magnolia. I'm Jeremy. I have seen this film quite a few times. I'm Cody, and uh, I have not seen this film ever. And I haven't seen it in quite a while, but I did watch it quite a bit. Anyway, so let's get to you. So now, are you a complete Paul Thomas Anderson version? Yeah, like I or no, I I've watched all the other ones. This is the one I'm missing. Is it because it's three hours long? Uh, <laughs> to be honest, it's okay. Well, actually, I don't know that much about this movie. What at all? My only like knowledge towards it is I think Tom Cruise is in it. I'm not going to verify that one way or the other. I, that's my only thing with it because I I got into uh, PTA late. Yeah. So, like, there will be blood, kind of yep. thing. And so, there, there will be blood is your first one. Uh, no, Punch Drunk Love would have been my first one. Okay, I was a huge like everything Adam Sandler when I was young. So yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. I'll watch oh, it. So all. that was your entry drug into him. Yeah, that's a great movie. I I love that movie, and every time someone's like Adam Sandler's shit, I'm like. He's good. In Punch Drunk. If you give him something that's good, you'll be good in it. Yeah, I'll and tell you the story after we watch the movie, yeah. but I have an autographed copy of Punch Drunk Love downstairs. What? And I'll explain why I have that autographed copy. <laughs> I it's, am it's, excited. It was from one of the best nights of my life. Um, <laughs> and we'll tell that. I think I've told the story on the podcast before, but I'll tell it again after for, for your enjoyment. All right. Uh, or, or boredom, depending on how, how you find the story. <laughs> yeah, even so, if it's a great story, I'm going to go, yawn. <laughs> so, so it's funny that it's like, I, I, uh, I think I was in on Paul Thomas Anderson almost from the start. Because I was in film school when this came out. Yeah. Uh, and so we were all, like, nerdy over it. I saw it in the theaters. Um, but I had a roommate who was obsessed with Paul Thomas Anderson. And so he kind of introduced me. So so by the time I think I got into him, Boogie Nights was just coming out on DVD. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Heart 8 or Sydney, depending on who you are and what you want to call it, uh, was on VHS or had been on VHS. So I, I saw those and then wa- and then caught up and watched Magnolia. But... Uh, I think uh, Boogie Nights was a big part of my film school experience. I remember that they used that oneer so many times to be like, now we're going to, as a class, try to do that today. And it's like, what? <laughs> it's funny that they showed that one and not like, did you look at other like big giant oneers? That was the main one I remember. I, yeah. They might have like, done other ones, like probably like Goodfellas. Did, they, did you ever see the Touch of Evil one? 
No. Oh, the opening of Touch, Touch of Evil, it's an Orson Welles film, it starts with a pretty amazing one that I think is what inspired Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Night one Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, PTA is just a giant nerd walking yeah. film school guy, right? But he's also like this super humble, nerdy, ridiculously funny guy as well. Like, they, when you watch, with the exception of Punch Drunk, I think if you watch any interviews with him or listen to him speak, you'd probably be shocked by how, like, down-to-earth and grounded he is versus the kind of movies he tends to make. Yeah. Uh, that's why I kind of find him to be be fascinating. Um, so how how did you miss Magnolia? How, how have you not gotten around to Magnolia? Because it's definitely one of his more uh, iconic movies. Yeah. Well, I, now I have. There's two I haven't seen because I haven't seen Phantom Thread either. Um, and the reason for Phantom Thread was because I was just so disappointed that that was the movie he made. Like when you wait so long for a PTA movie, that was just not the kind of movie I wanted to watch. Yeah. And I kind of revolted against that. But then Magnolia, I don't know. Like, I always, like, hear about it and everything. And when you're going through, like, film school, they suggest a lot of movies. And Magnolia was on the list of those movies to watch. And But you keep on, like, going back and forth. I'm also a real big bad movie guy. So I take a lot of enjoyment out of watching just terrible movies. Yeah. And a lot of my time is spent on that. That's fair. And not enough on great movies. And I'm curious because it's like, because I haven't seen this in a long time, and this is definitely, and again, I don't want to give away anything at all, but I think you could probably, I don't know, I don't want to, I shouldn't say this, because I don't think I ever felt this way about the movie, but it's definitely, you know, a big emotional movie, and I, and I wonder if it still holds up or if it comes off as like overly cheesy and sentimental. Oh, you, you'll know from my reaction because I'm a huge movie crier. Okay, great. Like, I watched uh, like Big Daddy a couple months ago and cried. Oh well, if Big Daddy made me cry, <laughs> I think we're. In for, I'll get some tissues out. We're gonna we can be we're gonna be cuddling very soon. <laughs> yeah, this is gonna be a whole a whole thing. <laughs> oh great, because I'm I'm excited to to because it's been a while, uh, and I will say for those who. Uh, haven't seen it, have seen this movie, but haven't seen it, and for you as well, mm-hmm. the, um, I'm sure you can find it online too, uh, but the, the, the bo- one of the bonus features on the DVD is probably my favorite bonus feature of all time. It's like a 40 minute, no, it's like an hour and a half. I can't remember. It's either 40 minute or it's like an hour and a half uh, making of documentary of the film called That Moment, and it's just delightful. Do you think that anyone ever watches Magnolia and then watches the bonus features directly after? Because there's no way. It's so long. It's so long. It's so, well, I, and an hour and a half documentary I, after uh, that. I can answer that. And the answer is yes. Uh, someone named Jeremy Lund has done that <laughs> on uh, at least two occasions that I can recall. Because I, I love the... As much as I really enjoy this movie, I love that documentary. And I consider it yeah. more of a documentary than a behind the scenes. I love that piece almost as much as I like the movie. Wow. Uh, because it's just such a beautiful, like, behind the scenes. It's the kind of thing where it's just like... It, you know, I saw it when I was a, an emerging, up-and-coming filmmaker, and it just made me excited. I'm like, that's kind of like just watching on him on his journey. Because it follows you all the way from him writing all the way to release. And it's just this really interesting... I'll, I'll, I'll go into it a bit more because I don't want to give anything away. But it's a really fascinating stuff because it's just like really off the cuff and you get to see him being vulnerable and like figuring shit out and making mistakes. 
it's just a really beautiful portrait of like an artist at a really interesting point in his life where he just made Boogie Nights, which is this giant massive hit. And now he's being given a film where he's being told he can do whatever he wants. And it's like, is that a good thing for a filmmaker at that age? Or is it not? And he even like wrestles that question because he was given a final cut for this movie, which is part of the reason it's three hours long, three hours and eight minutes. And, uh, and he even says in the documentary, he says, final cut, man, that is a dangerous thing to give to a guy like me. Uh, so, all right. So without further ado, I think we should just get into it. Let's do this. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right. So we just finished. Yeah, I was right. Tom Cruise was in it. Tom, yeah, so I guess we're done talking now. Uh, yeah, oh, is Tom Cruise ever in it? Uh, yeah, yeah. He's. I, I think we should... Uh, I definitely have a lot to say about Tom Cruise's character in this. Uh, but uh, for people wondering how long that movie is, it's power saver mode long. The projector thought at one point, there's no possible way you need me to still be on. And it gave a warning. Yeah, that, that was actually the PlayStation. I think it was, oh. I think it was the controller being like, hey, uh, do you want, yeah, but it was the same idea. Yeah, yeah that's funny. Um, but we were saying how it's, it's strangely for, for a movie that's three hours and eight minutes long, it, it, you know, it doesn't drag. No. Well, the thing is, it's like, it's this weird structure where it's like build, 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 countdown, three, two, one, shit goes down. Yeah. Which is really interesting how it keeps on doing that throughout it. Like, almost like... And they're not really false endings either. It's just like this weird structure to me that I... That I wouldn't be able to place if I was trying to write it. You know what I mean? Like, I was like... Because it it just felt like a countdown the whole time. And you're like, tick, 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 tick. Boom. And then let's start back up. Tick, 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 tick. Right back up again. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, it, it started off, he just wanted to make, after Boogie Nights, he wanted to make something small and intimate. Mm-hmm. And then he just kept on writing and kept on <laughs> writing and it kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And now he's since, I uh, listened to an interview with him a couple of years ago, and he says he would go back and he would trim the fuck out of it. Uh, <laughs> but at the time, I yeah. think he, it's interesting. So if you watch that making of, uh, He's constantly joking around about how long it is, <laughs> but also under this, like, with almost like this glee of, like, I have Final Cut and nobody can fucking stop me. <laughs> uh, and people are constantly making fun of how long it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even while they're shooting it. <laughs> That's amazing because, I mean, it's really interesting because I think there is a lot where I was like, ah, you don't really need that or whatever. But I had, like, a, a hypothetical for you. Yeah. That if you were tasked with editing this movie oh. and the studio said you have to cut one of these stories. One of the stories. The, the one thing I noticed this time that I hadn't noticed before is during the um, the Amy Mann song they all sing. I think William H. Macy doesn't sing. I think he's the only one that doesn't get a, a line in that song. Yeah, you're anyway, you're right. That, that doesn't answer your question. Just I wanted to do that before I forgot. Uh, what 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 a complete storyline? I don't know if you can because they all connect. They all connect somehow. You would have to connect them in a different way. Yeah, you'd have to cut out something or other because yeah, they literally all overlap and, and yeah. connect somehow. 
You could probably, I don't know, you can't cut Jimmy Gator because he's the kids and he he connects to Claudia. Yeah. Which connects to the mother, which connects to the police officer, which connects to... He's like the, he's the middle of it all. Well, technically Earl Partridge is because That's true. Because he's the one that produced the TV show. right. So he's kind of at the epicenter of it to some extent. But those two older men are. Yeah. You know, it's kind of ultimately the story of these two older men and their sins and how they trickle down upon everyone else they touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, back to that line that's echoed a few times, you know, the past may be done. We may be done with the past, but the past is not done with us. Yeah. Uh, and how that keeps coming back to haunt them in particular, but everyone else in, in the movie. I don't know if you could. I think you just have to trim down. Uh, what, I, were, what were you going to say? Did you have one? Yeah, I think it's possible to get rid of Julianne Moore, and it could have been the same movie. I was thinking, yeah, sure, you could probably... No, she's amazing in this movie. So she's amazing, yeah. And she's probably could, one of the best <laughs> performances in this thing. But Yeah, you could probably cut her out of the movie. Um, because it could just be about... The the story between um, uh, the the orderly and and the patient. Yes. And yeah. Yes. And there's a lot of scenes with her before it too, where you, it's not quite revealed her relationship with him. Or did no. I did I miss that at the start? Maybe I don't. know. Yeah. No. Not really. It's kind of. Yeah. I was wondering if you would when. Because it doesn't really try to tell you until it tells you. Yeah. She's like a much younger wife. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a daughter or... And I'm always... One of my biggest uh, things with movies is I'm so bad at remembering character names. Because I'm always like... Julianne Moore. Uh, yeah, yeah, Tom yeah. Cruise. And this movie's just a who's who, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Louise Guzman, presumably playing himself. Yeah, right? <laughs> Felicity Huffman is in the movie, too. Yeah. <laughs> playing the, the coordinator for the kids. Yeah, this is a lot of things where I'm like, is this, like, one of their first movies? Because some spar- uh, parts are, like, so small. That she was definitely, well, this is one of her earlier roles. And also, um, um, what's his name? Agent Colson. Yeah. From, yeah he yeah. plays, like, the, the AD on the TV yeah. show. Yeah, I forget his, his That's name. the first time I noticed it was him. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense, because, I mean, he's more and more prevalent now. Well, yeah, too. I don't think I've watched this movie since the, the Marvel movies, I don't think. Yeah. So now it's like, oh, shit, is that... I had to think about it for a second, but I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's him. And the the younger pharmacist, too, he's... Um, I, at first I, he's a director as well. Uh, he directed the movie, um, Cheap Thrills. Okay. Cheap Thrills. Yeah. But I, I don't know. He's a, I think he's a comedian too, maybe. Yeah. But I, I definitely, I was like, oh, that guy. Well, this is 99 (laughs) and I made a mistake. I think I said in the intro that I saw this when I was in film school, but this actually came out when I was in high school because I remember I think it was in grade 10 or 11 and I remember going with a group of friends and they all fucking hated it. <laughs> and I was the only one that walked away going, now there's something going on that I really, really dug. But I couldn't yeah. really talk to them about it because they were all just like, it was stupid. Frogs fell from the sky. It, that's stupid. You know, the as soon as the frog part happened, I'm like, how did I not hear about anything in this that's movie? That's what I was wondering because you said that you, 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 didn't even, you weren't even sure of Tom Cruise in it. So I'm like, well, the nice thing is it's been, you know, it's 20 years old now. Yeah. And which is... Oh my god, it's twenty years old. Uh, which is is the kind of thing where it's like, 
it's, it's almost skipped a generation, so if you missed it when it first came out, there's a good chance you don't know about a lot of the stuff. And so, so tell me, walk me through The Frogs. I mean, this this has to be a movie that definitely skipped my generation. Like, it's just lost in time because there's no way that the people I know wouldn't reference this at every turn. Like, I feel like I'm going to be talking about these frogs falling forever now. Like, it was really interesting because I was like, I was watching the frog thing and, I, and I'm not, I don't know a lot about religion, which made me think this must be a religious thing. Well, you know, he states that he wasn't aware of the religious connotation while they were shooting it. Mm-hmm. He was completely th- thrown at him after. Although there's all these Exodus 8.2 references throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, and I think there is some kind of connection to that, but he claims it was coincidental. Um, what, what's his reasoning for this? Well, I can tell you because I've heard it from him personally. Okay. Uh, but what I want to hear what you thought about I just want to know your reaction when it started happening. I was like, it was a moment where I was, I just kind of sat and like, okay, the movie didn't need it. Yeah. It really didn't need it. I was like, oh, this is coming to like a nice conclusion and everything. And then that starts happening and I'm like completely out of left field for me. And I'm like, okay, I get it. But at the same time, I don't think this was necessary. Right. But I loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was at... So when I was in... Uh, I'll tell you my PTA story now. All right. Uh, and this Because this is part of it. So when I was in uh, film school, I went to school at Niagara College. And, um, and about, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours from there, maybe, not even, in Rochester, New York, is a place called the Eastman House, which is the Eastman Kodak. It's where they make Kodak film. And so there's a big museum there, and they've got this giant theater that has a gorgeous uh, uh, amphitheater, and they do a lot of screenings there of, like, original prints. And so they um, they were doing a screening of Punch Drunk Love, and he was going to be in attendance. And so, of course, me and a buddy of mine were like, well, we're fucking going to that. Yeah. Because we were big, big fans of, of, uh, of, of uh, Punch Drunk Love, but also this and everything else he'd done up to that point. So we, we, we slept up there and and go to the screening, and uh, there's a part two to the story, but I'll tell the part one. And the part one is that, so during the Q&A for the movie after, of course, some little old lady uh, puts her hand up, and she says, I know this doesn't have anything to do with your current film, but I have to ask you, why were the frogs fall from the sky? <laughs> and of course, and he just sighs, because of course he's been asked that. A million fucking times. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, okay, I'm going to explain the frog thing one last time. Uh, and this is also, like, this is early 2000, so it wasn't just like you could, inter- you could like, look up a ton of in- interviews with him to, uh, to uh, find out how he had answered this. Which is also, I was thinking I was watching this movie in, in that it's, it's dated to some extent that it's like so much of this would have been affected by the internet. Where if, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman could just look up Frank Mackey on the internet, he might have been able to find him differently or easier. I he would loved him. how... That was 
amazing to me that he had to order a porno mag. And he ordered multiple, too, but found just it in the first one to find that ad. Well, I love the beat when the woman says, do you just want the peanut butter and bread? He's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I get it. You thought I was just buying those so I could order porn mags. That's funny. It's cute. Uh, <laughs> so, he sa- so the story goes, he says, so when I was writing the film, um, there was a lot of just things happening in my life particularly around like a lot of people and a lot of older people that I knew um, that were suddenly getting cancer. And it, it felt like, you know, I can't remember the number he said. I'll probably exaggerate it. I think he said like, you know, somewhere between six and eight people in his life suddenly got stricken down with some form of cancer. And it just felt like one after the other after the other. And it's, like, he's like, it's not possible that this plague of disease is just going through all these people I know it's like, it's just not possible, this level of coincidence. And he says, and then it happened one more time. And he says, you might as well, and he said, that, he said to the person that told me, he says, you might as well have just told me that frogs are falling from the sky. That's how little this makes fucking sense to me, that one more person is now dying that I know. And, and so he, and that stuck with him, that visual image of his thought of, of that concept of how bonkers that was. And that's... And so he told this little lady, he's like, so that's what the fucking frogs mean, okay? <laughs> and everyone... So, so I think it's about... I think the idea is that the frogs don't make sense. And, and, yeah. and, then it, and it feels weird and bizarre. Terrifying. And, and terrifying. Because it, that's what yeah. it is. Like you do, it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for it to happen. But it did happen. And then he literally... Because that's what Paul Thomas Anderson was doing at this point in his career. He literally, like, pans the camera into the corner of this painting in Claudia's apartment that says, but it did happen. Yeah. And I, I, I was like, okay, this is the frogs. But also, I think it was confirming that he did molest her, too. A lot. I, 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 of course he did. Yeah. You know, I, I think you have to believe that. Yeah. But that, I was like, okay, like that's confirmation. So I'm not going to leave this thing being like, mm, I don't know. But it's fascinating, too. It's like the frogs stop him from killing himself. Because I think mm-hmm. that's, and I think that's like, whether you want to get religious about it or not, it's, it's fate basically saying, it's like, no, you don't get out that easy. Yeah. It's like, you've got to li- linger in this. And you know, you do know what you did. Um, yeah. Uh, and then the, the part two that I'll tell just because it's a vanity thing of the Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> is that after 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 a bunch of like us went down to like encircle him because of course we all had shit for him to sign yeah and just wanted our extra personal moment with him and uh, and he you know stayed in the circle with us talking for a long time and then eventually it dwindled down to like a group of like six to eight of us and then he's just like I don't mean to be rude I don't mean to cut this short. But it's like, I just need a fucking beer. And if you guys want to keep on talking, I'm happy to keep on talking and hang out with you guys. But can we do it at a bar? And so, and of course, I'm thinking, oh, you're going to give us the address for a bar and you're not going to show up. I understand this move. Okay, fine. But I'm going to go to the bar. And so only about half of four of us went. And he showed up. And I spent the rest of the night sitting down drinking with Paul Thomas Anderson and having the most amazing, grounded, beautiful conversation ever. It's incredible. <laughs> and then, of course, by the end of it, he's like, you have some stuff stuff for me to sign, don't you? And by that point, I was like, I mean, you're never going to remember me, but we're kind of pals now, and I don't want to like ruin it by making you sign something of mine. 
but he like literally dug into my bag. He's like, just pull it out. I don't care. I will sign it. He <laughs> says, it's, it's not beneath you to do that. So he signed, uh, I got the autographed copy of my Punch Drunk Love, and um, I had a script of Boogie Nights, and he signed it. Amazing. Because he signed he saw the yeah. movie, and then he says, what's this book in here? I was like, oh, it's just some book. Don't worry about it. He's like, no, no I want to see what you're reading. He pulled out, he's like, just some book, huh? <laughs> so I think he's written inside of it. He wrote nice book, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, yeah, so that's my PTA story, and I'm sure he doesn't remember it. Yeah, uh, but Oof. it's one of those nights I'll never forget. I'm I'm sure he does remember that. Who knows? Yeah, but it was just one of those because it was also like it was the first time I had met one of my heroes, mm-hmm. and they always say don't meet your heroes. Yeah, uh, but he was also the sweetest, humblest, most grounded person. And I was just like, fuck, you're cool. <laughs> you know, he was just so nice and nonchalant and uh, and didn't come off as, you know, cocky or pretentious, was legitimately interested in what we were doing and ta- and thinking about. And, yeah, it was just really, really lovely. Uh, anyway, back to Magnolia. <laughs> uh, I mean, you could talk about this movie forever, you it, know? Yeah, there's so many things to dig into. I mean, oh, I can say why I knew Tom Cruise was in this movie or why that thought process was. Because when I re- I realized when I was watching it, um, he has, like, the long hair and he ties the middle in, like, a ponytail. And, and that's what you do. That's what I did. <laughs> and you didn't know it, but you got yeah, this. Yeah, I got it from him. He's my you're hero a, in this You're, you're a walking presentation of TJ, Frank T.J. Mackey. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Please don't put that on me. Uh, no, I had a roommate uh, when I was going to uh, Vancouver Film School who had his hair like that. Like, I don't have the long on the ends, but he put it, he had his hair long and he was doing it like that. And he was like, Oh, it's cool. It's like Tom Cruise. And now I realized that that was the Tom Cruise that he was idolizing. Yeah. Frank T.J. Mackey. Tame, tame the cunt. I think he says. Yeah. It, it really felt like he was doing a character monologue at a comedy show and was trying to go for something that was like, Oh, this is gonna be like fuck you to these people, but it it was like you would be watching it at like comedy bar or whatever, and yeah. be like, "Ooh, that didn't hit." It just seems like you like that thing. <laughs> yeah, but but what a journey that character goes through. Yeah, I mean, his uh, I cried uh, during his part with uh, with his dad. That was the time that I cried during the movie. Yeah, and that was improvised. Yeah, really. He didn't like the speech that Paul Thomas Anderson had written for him, so PTA was just like, "We'll do whatever you want." Then, yeah, he's like, and and Tom Cruise's dad had died when he was younger, so he's like, "Do what happened when your dad died." I mean, you know, you make the character, make it work for the character. Yeah, but and that's where he came up with, uh, "You fucking asshole, please don't go." Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it's a crazy crazy turn uh for him in there but i'm so conflicted on the character itself just because uh just because of having a friend that idolized him and the (laughs) things he's saying but it's it's fascinating because i mean clearly the character does not age well no but at the same time you know when i saw this movie 20 years ago you know you're watching this going this guy's a piece of shit it wasn't Mm -hmm. like the movie was trying to say he's a hero you know what I mean? It's like he yeah. he gets dressed down pretty well by the interviewer. Mm-hmm. You know what she does is shitty. Like she sets him up, and 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 she says, "I don't mean to attack you," but it's like, "Yeah, you did." Yeah. It's like as soon as he started doing his thing. But that said, it's like the way he was treating her at the beginning of the interview. 
He deserved everything he got. Yeah, if it really felt like everyone was shitty in this movie, yeah. in a way. Like, even John C. Riley's character, who's very supportive to that girl, he starts off watching Tom Cruise's character. John C. Riley? Yeah, it, he's like, he's, he starts off, he's watching that. At the start of the movie, that's how you it pans out of uh, Tom Cruise and it's John C. Riley watching it, and then he's working out in the gym, right? He's uh, doing bench presses. Fuck! I never know. I never caught that before. So he's doing the being a nice guy thing. Oh man, I, I've, I've seen this movie a dozen times. I never noticed that. Good catch. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Yeah. It's interesting. So after Boogie Nights came out, Tom Cruise. I don't know if he ran into him or he contacted him. He told Thomas Anderson, I'd love to work with you. And so Paul Thomas Anderson wrote this with him in mind and then got him to agree to be in the movie and send him the script. And then Tom Cruise is like, I do not know if I can do this. <laughs> you know, and this is like, is this pre-Mission Impossible Tom Cruise? Or it's, it must have been after the first one, but before it really became the franchise that it now is. Yeah, because the second one's what, 2001, I think. Yeah, because there's no way Tom Cruise would do this now. No. I wonder what... Well, maybe. I mean, he did the, like, Tropic Thunder character. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a comedy. And you that's can, like, true. You can point at that. Yeah. But it's, like, it's interesting because I think he went through his, his, like, in his younger phase, he went through his prestige director phase where he wanted to work with the greats and interesting people. Mm-hmm. And I think now he's done that. And now he's just like, I just want to entertain and yeah. do crazy shit <laughs> and, uh, and just do ridiculous stunts and be that guy now. Yeah, I feel like he's moved past that working with great Artur phase of his career. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of these people. I mean, uh, I now I'm thinking about uh, William H Macy because I was thinking about this during the movie, and I thought about like how um, disappointed you would be to know what my other frame of reference of William H Macy is because I think the first movie I watched of his was. Probably Wild Hogs. <laughs> and then the other one was Lady Killers. That's okay. I'm, I'm like, okay with Lady Killers, but... Well, Lady Killers is probably my least favorite Coen Brothers movie. But it's still not a terrible movie to You know me. what? I haven't revisited it since I saw it in the theaters. I rented it, at, so I haven't seen it since then. Maybe it is bad. I don't know. I just remember being so disappointed by it, and it's... One of the few that I never bought, and I and I'm a completionist on my DVD shelf. Yeah, and that and I still could never even when it, when it came to Blockbuster and it was in like the two ninety nine bin. I'm mm-hmm. like, nope, can't fucking do it. Never gonna <laughs> watch it. Really dis disliked it. I I do have Lady Killers. I'm I'm a completionist as well, and I I have it there. I haven't revisited it or anything, but I I will go with my completion to like so hard, like to the point where. When I was a kid, I started with like Adam Sandler movies, and I kept going with it up until Jack and Jill came out, and then I was like, I can't do this anymore. He has <laughs> just taken too much money from me. But now they're all free on Netflix, <laughs> That's or true. at least included with your uh, your monthly fee. Yeah, <laughs> not all of them, but he, he can. He's got his Netflix deal, and I, I assume it'll be renewed. And- He'll keep on doing that. Yeah. Well, I I think that his movies are still, like, one of the most watched on there or something. Yeah. It's yeah. a good deal for him. He gets to make whatever he wants to make. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the dream for him. Like, he's just doing exactly what he wants, like, going on vacation and stuff. Yeah, he picks, the, he picks a, a spot he wants to go hang out with some friends, and they make a movie, and then he does another one six months later, or a year later. Yeah. It's pretty primo gig. <laughs> Good job, uh, Adam Sandler. But he's making, like, the interesting stuff, too. He did the Noah Baumbach one. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, you know, I've always loved uh, him doing like yeah uh what was that movie called it was with dustin hoffman ben stiller right Me- it's got a lot of the men Meyerowitz. the Meyerowitz chronicles or something like that yeah it it's good i like that one too i i love his performance as a dramatic as a dramatic actor like punch drunk love but they all bombed i think i think all of them bombed it's hard to say how Meyerowitz did because it was netflix and they don't give their analytics that's true but punch drunk love definitely i don't know did it bomb I mean, for for the price it cost, it couldn't have bombed. It probably just did, it probably just was nowhere near the amount of money his movies usually make. Yeah, because I but, think even Jack and Jill's over a hundred million dollars. Yeah, but I think Punch Drunk Love was probably. I mean, we can go to Box Office Mojo and, and look up the actual numbers, but I'm sure it recouped, uh, <laughs> if nothing else, because I can't imagine that movie was more than eight million dollars to make. Yeah, true. You know, that was still back in that indie phase where those where movies were being made at that that budget and that level. Yeah, and it doesn't have any frogs raining down or anything to take up the budget. No, and that's what he followed <laughs> up this with was Punch Drunk Love, right? Yeah, and he joined like he went. I think he originally was going to make it more of a comedy, but he can't help himself. And he even like he went and did a stint where he worked in the SNL com- like writers room. Just to like learn comedy, yeah, and I think that's how he met Maya Rudolph, who he's married to. Really, I didn't know that. You didn't know they're married? No. Yeah, they're married. They got a mess of kids. <laughs> a whole mess of them. A whole mess of them. I think they have like they have a ton of children. Oh, wow. two of them. As many, all those dogs. As many. As there were but that, but that, you know, that speaks to like his his personality too. Mm-hmm. To know that he's married to someone like Maya Rudolph. Yeah. Can you imagine the dinner conversations they have? <laughs> That'd be an awesome dinner party. I'd love to sit at that table. And at this point, when he made this, um, he's dating Fiona Apple, uh, who's a, a songwriter, a musician. Oh, okay. And she she features not heavily, but she's in the uh, the making of too. Oh. And okay. Has like a really interesting, a couple interesting moments with him. I can't, I can't speak highly enough of the making of. It's such a fascinating piece. I'm definitely going to watch it now, especially because this is such an interesting movie. Uh, just the, I mean, the pacing of it's just so interesting yeah. to me. Well, the, the making of is so fun because it's not like it doesn't take itself seriously at all. Mm-hmm. Like when they're at the press junket, they are making fun of him hard. <laughs> like they're it's like it's, well, they're all pals, right? Yeah. So Wilmer Macy and um, and and Philip Seymour Hoffman are mocking the fuck out of him. <laughs> like, there's this great. I don't want to ruin it. There's this, but there's this great moment where, uh, you know, I can only imagine how much of a pain in the ass those those press junkets are. They just ask the same questions over and over again. And Philip Seymour Hoffman just comes out of one one of the interviews at one point. He's just like, Ugh, if I could ask one more fucking time, how great is it to work with Paul Thomas Anderson? I'm fucking kill somebody. How great is Paul? How great is Paul? I don't know. I guess he's a genius or some shit. Fuck off. It's just so funny. Just watching them just be pals and then just shitting on each other. Yeah. Delightful. Um, uh, one of the other things in this movie is uh, some of like the set decor is so odd. Like, like what? Uh, when John C. Riley goes into that apartment at the start and uh, arrests that woman... 
in her living room, she has like a four like um, like gumball machine, but like one that you'd see in a store with like toys in one gumballs in yeah. one. And like, that's such a, why would anyone have that? <laughs> Especially, but it happens is <laughs> the answer to all the questions in this movie. It's so odd, though, because especially that apartment is so scarce with items that you have to notice it. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed that. It's probably harder to notice this on a first watch, but there's a painting of a magnolia in each location. I did notice them often, but I don't know if I got all locations. Yeah. And I don't know where they are in all locations, but Mm -hmm. I did this time around definitely kind of like I was trying to pick them off. More yeah. and more. Uh, there's ones that are more obvious than others. Like there's the one where I think it's in the prologue, and the guy shoots himself. It literally pans up to it and gets the the, bl- the blood splatter. Uh, you were excited oh, yeah. to see Patton Oswalt. I was excited to see Patton Oswalt. That yeah. was great. In a very small part. A very small part. Then he was done. <laughs> I love. I I almost always forget about that prologue. And then as soon as the movie starts, I'm delighted by the fact that I forgot it existed. <laughs> uh, and what is so that's so that comes on and what are you thinking at that point? Uh I'm thinking like okay this is I started um piecing together I'm like this is going to be a bunch of stories and I thought in my head they're all going to end in uh some kind of like suicide or murder. Oh. In, in all of them. That's what I was kind of thinking. Yeah. Which I think really he's just trying to set up this this concept of like I think he's just trying to set up the idea of chaos and in harmony and it's idea that it's like things don't make sense and then mm-hmm. and, and all, a lot of times there's coincidence uh that you would say that would that could never happen but sometimes these things do happen yeah and that was very clear when it came back around i was like okay yeah that's where i i missed the mark on that i took the wrong thing from it yeah and all of those those stories in the prologue are all urban legends that have all been debunked <laughs> <laughs> to to to, un, to unprove Paul Thomas Anderson's theory. Uh, it's funny because he does do it. He try. It's it's funny that it's like, it's almost like he doesn't trust the audience enough to go along with his his crazy ensemble story that he has to like feels the need to put these things in that are essentially like coincidence happens. It's okay. You you yeah. can you can believe that this would happen. It's like you know he even has that moment where. Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing the monologue about this. That scene in the movie where you help me, yeah, <laughs> Will you help me. It's like it's so funny that he feels the need to kind of hang a hang a, a lantern on it. It's a, it's almost like he's like writing down like these fuckers aren't gonna believe I did it on purpose, and I'm gonna just put it in the movie that I did. Yeah, and it's not even like he got a studio note because I no. think after Boogie Nights he demanded final cut because I think they made him do a bunch of cuts in Boogie Nights. He wanted the movie to be longer or something, and and they forced him to trim it down to two and a half hours or whatever it is. And so when it was a, a big success and it won all these awards and stuff, it was the the deal was that he got to basically make whatever he wanted to do, and uh, and they let him and and he went and he went with it. Yeah, yeah. he ever. Yeah, he went bananas with it. Uh, what about you for uh, watching it this time around? Because it's been a while. You said it's been a long time. I, it's probably been oh, I'd say it's been a couple of years since I've seen it for sure. Do you have like a story that is your favorite that you're like oh, I can't wait for that one to come back? 
No, they all really flow really nicely mm-hmm. for me. Like I like the little moments of each one. I love like the awkwardness of John C. Riley's character, mm-hmm. like that heartbreak and how pathetic he is when he loses his gun. Yeah. Um, and and William H. Macy is so. They're all. I mean, they're all heartbreaking and pathetic, right? Mm-hmm. Every single one. I love the kid when he, when he has this little breakdown. And he's like, I don't want to do it anymore. It's like, and he throws it back to Jimmy Gator. And then he tells his daddy he'd be nicer to me. Yeah. And just like everyone has this great little moment where uh, they just get a shine in like sometimes just really small ways. Uh, and that's why when you said it's like who you cut out and it's like oof. And, and I think you're right. It's like if you were forced to, you'd probably unfortunately cut Julianne Moore. Um, but fuck that scene in the pharmacy is so good. Yeah, that was really good. She had a lot of really great scenes in there. And the scene when she's admitting that she doesn't want the money because she didn't love him at first, but now she does, and, and so she doesn't want it. And and just that kind of stuff. Which is interesting because it's like, you never, outside of her kissing him on the forehead, they don't interact at all throughout the movie. Yeah. And Jason Robards, like, how amazing is he as as Earl? He's the, the dying man. Yeah, his uh, his speech. Uh, I don't. I don't think that was towards the end. I think there was still like a half an hour left when yeah. his speech came in. But it was really about, about regrets. And, yeah, and, uh, and fucking up. Yeah, and he was dying when they made the movie. Like he was. He was really, really sick. It's his last performance. Oh wow! Uh, like within a year of the, of them shooting, I think. Oh, it was either a year of them shooting or a year of the release. He's gone. Um, wow. And uh, and just but it just it, it, it you feel like he's channeling whatever he's actually going through, and it doesn't it doesn't even feel like a performance. Yeah, I think like most of the everything that ha- takes place in that house, I think was my favorite to watch, just because I thought Philip Seymour Hoffman was incredible as well, um, and just balanced so many different things of like being funny when he needed to be funny, being emotional. Like I mean that. It brought in a lot of different stuff. And then Tom Cruise coming in at the end to that house, like, it's solidified like, that as, like, I'm like, okay, this is the location to be in. Yeah. And if yeah, and if you, those dogs come near me, I would drop <laughs> When the moment they come, he comes in the, into the room and, it's, and they're just awkwardly standing there, him and Tom Cruise, I was like... Oh my god, you guys were the hero and villain in Mission Impossible 3. <laughs> I didn't and, even put that together. And what a different dynamic that was. <laughs> which was. Which was not that far around from this time. No. This, this is 99. And Mission Impossible 3, I think it's 2009. I think it might be 10 years. No, it's not that much later, is I it really? I think it is, yeah. Or maybe I'm gonna, I'm 2007. Gonna I'm going to look it up real quick. But uh, I'm gonna do 07 as my prediction. That's your, that's your. Uh, oh, we're three 2006. You're pretty oh. good. Well done, sir. I'm. That's like I'm pretty good with movie years around then. I was gonna say 06, and I was well, like, it's fascinating. Oh, the second one is 2000, and I said 2001 for that one. And the first one's 96. Like they really they, space them. Yeah, it didn't become until three came out that they were like, you know what, we got a franchise here. And they really started cranking them out more. <laughs> the first three, they were like, ah, I guess I'll do another one. Uh. No, it was. There was five years. There were six years between two and three. And then five years between three and four. And then it was like every two or three years. And now they're kind of cranking them out. 
Yeah, and they're better now. Well, they've become a different thing. Yeah, right? they're also a very different thing. Yeah, it's like, it's not quite the Fast and the Furious thing, but it's like, it's very much how it's like, if you go back to the beginnings of the of the franchise, it's like, you can see the seeds that were laid, but it was also such a different, smaller, smaller thing. Uh, so yeah, so now that you've, you haven't quite completed, I will tell you this. For Phantom Thread, which you're like, I don't know yeah. if that's the kind of movie I want to see Paul Thomas Anderson make. Are you a Hitchcock guy? Do you like Hitchcock? Um, yeah. I haven't seen as much Hitchcock as I should have, but... If you want to see Paul Thomas Anderson try to make a Hitchcock film, that's what the Phantom Thread is. Okay. So watch right. it with that in mind, that he's trying to channel, like, Hitchcock in that movie. All right. And it's not because I went in going the same feeling, the same thing going, I don't want to watch Daniel Day Lewis's final performance as a dressmaker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm such like, I get really uh, taken away from uh, like uh, period piece or in that like kind of aspect. Like, even um, I, uh, what was it? Uh, The favorite this year. Yeah. Yeah. I like that director. A lot. I liked uh, the lobster, and I liked uh, killing of the sacred deer a lot. I haven't seen Dogtooth yet. That's what. Yeah. But uh, the favorite, I was like, you know what? I don't like this era, and I can't get into it. The favorite was my favorite of his movies. Really? Ironically, I don't know. There was something about it that felt more cohesive and connective than the other ones. The other ones I liked a lot. Like I liked mm. while I was watching, going, "This is such a fascinating movie," but. At the same time, when it was done, I was just like, got everything I needed out of that movie, never need to revisit it. Like, the bonkersness of this will stay with me forever. <laughs> Where when I was on The Favorite, I, I kept on thinking about it for days after, and wanted really? to revisit and think about it. Where the other ones, I really appreciated the time, and I liked the quirkiness and the awkwardness, but when they were done, they were done for me. I've seen I've seen The Lobster probably three times, and I've seen uh, Killing the Sacred Deer four. I yeah. think I like that one more. I, I saw The Lobster randomly when I was at uh, Cinequest Sudbury Film Festival. I was there with, I think I was there with Had a Planet Orgy in a small town. And so I just I jumped into a screening of whatever we're starting next. Yeah. Did no idea what it was about, no idea of anything. And so that was kind of the best way to watch The Lobster being unprepared for what it was. I think I jumped in on that same thing. I used to go to uh, Carlton Cinema and just look at the posters and be like, oh, go see that one. Nice. And just walk into it. Oh, good for you. Which this kind of felt like that kind of like movie magic to me because I was I didn't know <laughs> what was going to happen at all. So just like kind of like piecing together this thing, which also that element of like it happened, anything can happen kind of kind of thing was very interesting to watch when I knew nothing about it because I was like, yeah, anything can happen. I've been thinking that this whole movie and that <laughs> the frog scene just solidified it. Yeah. By that point, I guess they, they, they set that up. Yeah. There's also that moment where they're all singing and they're so the singing thing too. I was like, Oh, this is weird at first. And then I was just taken to, uh, like times when I was sad and you're just kind of somberly singing to a song that you're listening to very quietly and it just all made so much sense to me. <laughs> yeah, there's something emotional about it that I think is universal that people, mm-hmm. where you go, you know, what's the chance of them all knowing and singing the same song together? But it's like, I think for me, it's just like, that's that's the movie's dramatization of it. Like, they could yeah. all be at home singing this, the, their version of that song that means something to them. But yep. for the purposes of a cinematic story, 
let's make it all the same song. It had that comfort feel of you're not alone. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, they're all going through this thing, this monumental experience on the same night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also, you think about it, I mean, this takes place in, in, a, in, in a giant city. It takes place in Los Angeles. And so you got to imagine that it's like there are nights like that where there's enough people that live in this city that there's at least a dozen people that are going through something life-changing on the same night. The fact that they're all connected to each other through like six degrees of, of whatever yeah. is, you know, that's the part that I think he's trying to say, yeah, it's weird that this would happen, but sometimes it does happen. Yeah, and I don't know. I I liked it a lot. I think that um, he must have. I don't. I don't know. I I felt like it must have been at a certain point. To me, was like ah, we could do these all like separate stories, and it's like this could be going on in one night. But then just like put the through line in there in the middle, and just like ah, oh, we're gonna make it all together. Yeah, because but but I think it is designed. Um, it's very much designed to flow the way it does. Yeah. Just because the way the cameras move and... and Flow so well. Yeah, because it's not like... I just watched an ensemble last night called Wild Tales. Have you seen this movie? Uh, that's on Netflix. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet. fucking great! It's on it's, my queue. It's so good. It's... All I'll say is it's... Uh, it's an, another, like, ensemble about a bunch of sh- smaller stories. Mm-hmm. They're all just dark comedies. Okay. Uh, but they are segmented. They're all just like one after the other. They they, they don't juxtapose. Yeah. Uh, and and they don't. Well, they go together. They're, they're thematically linked. Uh, but this one does. Uh, you know, the, the characters overlap, and and the, the Magnolia absolutely benefits from repeat viewings. And I will say, you know, for me, particularly, like this came out when I was in high school, and you know, I had friends that were obsessed with him, and I was kind of mildly obsessed with him, especially after I met met him. Um, and so when I made, you know, something like Sex After Kids, it was definitely a direct influence on, on me because that's a movie about completely disconnected storylines that kind of, as the movie goes along, you start to see they're connected in different ways and certain characters from some storylines branch over into the other ones. Uh, you know, it's by no means as epic and monumental as this film. But uh, you didn't choose Frog Rain for that one. Oh man! If I <laughs> if I could have got away with Frog Rain, I didn't have the budget. How, how many frogs do you think are in this movie? Oh my god! Uh, I know the answer. It's probably a small number. There's some of them are CGI. CGI. They were starting to do CGI at this point. I would say, the, uh, yeah, because this is in '99, so that's yeah. around the same time as it's, Matrix, and they're Phantom Menace too. Yeah. Uh, I would say there's probably a hundred frogs. There's seven thousand nine hundred frogs in the movie. Well, fuck, I was way off. There's a lot of frogs. <laughs> That's a lot of frogs. But there's a lot more added. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought for sure it was going to be a shockingly small number, so I went for that. There, there are some great moments in the, in the behind the scenes dealing with the frogs where they're just like they're trying to have really serious meetings about these frogs and every now and then Paul Thomas Anderson just like squeals with joy and he's like I can't believe I'm getting away with this <laughs> <laughs> he's just in delight that it's like this is even happening <laughs> I, there was something about the uh, the frogs like hitting the pool that just chilled me to my core <laughs> yeah yeah you, and you get to see that you get to see them shooting that in the, in the behind the oh, scenes oh really yeah oh. and it's great and you get to watch and that's where you can see that, oh, yeah, this is like 7,900 because you're watching them 
fall through like uh, umbrellas and and hit the pool and hit like the the diving board and the water and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's, it's creeping. And just when they start breaking through windows and stuff. Yeah. Cuz it goes it goes from being like this is bizarre and weird to fucking dangerous. Yeah. And deadly like these things. I was surprised that uh William H Macy uh didn't die. <laughs> No, but his teeth got all fucked up. Yeah, his teeth did get fucked up. And now he's not going to get the dental surgery. And uh, and now that uh, other guy at the bar is going to pick up the bartender, the guy that played Santa Claus in Christmas with the Cranks. Yeah. (laughs) That one line of William H. Macy's The Morning After kills me every time. And especially how it cuts to John T. Riley right afterwards when he says, I have all this love or so much love and I just don't know where to put it. Mm -hmm. It's like, ugh. I mean, it's all of them. In a way, right? Yeah. It's just really, really beautiful. And then his gun falls from the sky, and he gets his gun back. Because <laughs> he didn't know where to put something, and the gun represents that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but but the kid stole the gun. We saw where the gun went. Yeah, we saw where it went. I don't know how they, the sky got it, but the sky yeah. magically stole it from the kid. Picked it up with all those frogs. Yeah. The only um, storyline, there was a storyline cut from the movie. Uh, it was more with the kid. It was the worm. He mentions the worm a few times in in his rap, and also there's this right. part, there's a sequence in the um, the police station where they're questioning, and they mention the worm a few times. Uh, but the worm is the person who, who killed the the guy that's in the closet at the beginning. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so there's a storyline with him, which is mm. not huge. It's not. I think it's just a couple scenes. Yeah, but you can see in the making of you can see them shooting one of the scenes. And then I'm pretty sure on the DVD they have the the cutscenes as well. Yeah, that you can see why they got cut. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that. Yeah, it's no uh, crazy uh, crazy stretch to go. Oh yeah, this is stuff you didn't need <laughs> um, in a movie that's already three hours three hours long. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, again, we can just go on and on and on. I know. Is, there, is there anything else that that's that's jumping out at you? I th- I think I uh, got all the things that I really wanted to talk about in there. Yeah. So what do you think now that you, this is coming kind of the end of like seeing having seen most of his work? Yeah. You know what? Like this uh, this movie. I think I'm gonna have to repeat watch it for sure. Uh, but I think it's on like the, the top tier of uh, his work that I've seen just already to me because I was watching this thing and I was thinking like. What moment is going to drag upon rewatching? And I couldn't really think of one. I'll say, like, having seen it a lot of times and knowing this film pretty intimately, and as a person who does not do well watching movies late at night, mm-hmm. I, was, I was stuck with I did not off. I was, I was totally drawn in. I, I, I was actually pleasantly surprised by just how engaging it still is. And that's part of it, like, just the power of his filmmaking with, like, the way he uses music and the energy of his shots and and there's some scenes that are long and, and some shots that he just lets linger and sit. But the performances inside of them are so, like, off. Like, there's this great moment that I, I kind of, like, thought of when I was watching this time where when John T. Riley first comes over to Melora Walter's apartment and the, and the music, and he's telling her about how the music is too loud and it'll make you deaf. And it just holds in that really wide shot with her on the left side and him on the right. And it just doesn't cut into it. And it just stays there the whole time. And I was sitting there going, I'm like, I'm sure they shot coverage of this. 
but it's just like it's such an interesting choice to just stay there because neither of them are giving like these truly remarkable performances they're actually giving these really awkward weird performances yeah where there were certain points where I was like is John C. Riley good in this movie well I think what's really great and I think that works because as you're watching them like they have this such an awkward relationship mm-hmm. that even when they ask each other on a date, it's like, I'll see you later. Yeah, I'll be here. Okay. And he leaves. She's literally borderline crying the entire interaction of them at meeting. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there's something about it that you're like, you know, because you've been spending time with him too. It's like, they're both broken. Mm-hmm. It's like, he's the misfit of the police force. He doesn't even have a partner. It's like, he was the first cop on the scene of that uh, homicide that he walks in on mm-hmm. and you know when all the other cops are there like they're not he's sitting standing behind them all yeah he's not definitely hasn't taken lead on this case they don't nobody wants him in charge and then and then you know to add insult to injury later they're all like the police force in Los Angeles has effectively stopped to find his fucking gun in the pouring down rain um you can also look at it as uh He's kind of broken, but he's using this nut, a nice guy technique on a very vulnerable, crying person. Oh, I fr- see. That's that's a whole other layer that I totally, I've never noticed him watching that video at the beginning. Because that's how it transitions into the next story. Yeah, I know you're right. I for some reason I just I never caught that. So thank God I watched this with you, because now it's just like it kind of, ugh ruins that character for me but also I think by the end he comes back around to not being that guy or he decides he's not going to be that guy maybe oh don't Tony <laughs> fuck you <laughs> fuck you for ruining John T. Ryan's performance in this movie that guy's a piece of, a of shit you're a piece of shit oh <laughs> uh, but wow like that's something that I never noticed for some reason or I, or I mentally blocked I probably mentally blocked it because I'm also just such a huge John T. Riley yeah fan. He's like he can do no wrong for me. Have you seen him in uh, like? Have you, did you listen to his uh, interview on Mark Maron? No, it's not great. Oh, why? <laughs> no, because he won't. He refuses to talk about everything because he he says he won't talk about past projects. He won't talk about family. Oh, he he won't talk about any past character, nothing. Like what he just comes on with like an agenda to promote something. Yeah, uh-huh. and I, and Mark Maron's like trying, but he seems like very like stiff and. Well, he's got a private life. He doesn't. I, I, yeah. I understand that that and him wanting to have his own privacy and not wanting to dwell on the past. But at the same time, it's like clearly you have not listened to what the fuck podcast. Yeah, because that's kind of what Mark Maron does. Yeah, why come on? Besides, because your press agent forced you to do it for the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a weird one. Yeah, especially after uh, hearing um, Mark Maron open up about his cats for how long. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. This is, I, I, I tend to skip the intros on, on Mark Maron's podcast. They're, they're rarely the best part of them. But he's a great interviewer. Yeah, yeah, he's very good. Yeah, but, uh, huh. So I, I will skip that then. Yeah. <laughs> does he come off as a dick? He does. He does in that. Aww. Which is because the only other interviews I think I've seen him in before, like I've seen him do late night interviews where he just talks about whatever movie he's doing, which makes sense. And then I see him do stuff with like Will Ferrell where they just like dick around the whole time. Yeah. 
So I've never actually heard an actual interview with him until this one, and then I was like, oh, no. I bet you know what? He probably doesn't do them often because he, no. he doesn't like doing them. Yeah. And I bet you he's just got a really – he really tries to protect his family and his private life, and I get that. Yeah, that part makes sense. The past project thing, though, I mean, like, if you're not giving anyone anything, I don't know. What are they going to go with? Yeah. I think he's probably forced to do that. Probably. And now, anytime he's asked to do something like that, he can point to that interview going, this is what will happen. <laughs> if you put me in that situation with somebody, and they're like, we get it. <laughs> no John, one wants this. <laughs> no one wants this again. Poor Mark Maron. Uh, well, that's unfortunate. Now I kind of want to listen to it, just, to, just so I can listen to it and go, no, John G. Riley's right. He should have been shitty to Mark Maron. <laughs> But uh, I probably won't do it. You gotta take a side. It's either Mark Maron or John C. Riley, and I want to split everyone now. That is a hard side to take. <laughs> I adore both equally. Uh, so, any final thoughts? Uh, I'm excited to watch it again. Right yeah. now. Right now. Ooh, I, I'll loan you the disc. I'm not going to stay up. Uh, but honestly, if you've got like some time to kill tomorrow, pop in the making of. Yeah. Before you watch it again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm excited to watch the making of. I'm probably gonna watch it tomorrow myself. I feel like I will. I feel like I'll find an excuse to put it on the background of whatever I'm doing. Yeah. Because God damn, it's so good. I I, I have seen the making of more than I've seen the movie. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> well, because it's one of those things. I went through that phase where I was just like, I would just watch, and I haven't done this in forever. But if I was working on something or, you know, especially if I was doing something like just answering emails or, or doing taxes or something, I would just like marathon bonus features on movies. Okay. Um, yeah. As something that I could half pay attention to in the background, mm-hmm. especially commentaries. Like, yeah. I used to treat commentaries like podcasts, you know? Do you have a favorite commentary? Oh, uh, I mean, there's the, there's the famous ones like the Spinal Taps and those mm-hmm. kind of ones that are done in character. There's one that I, the the Swingers one's really good. The the John Favreau one, I really like that one. Uh, one of my favorites is on the Man Who Wasn't There. It's a Cohen movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. and it's the Coens doing it with uh, um, Billy Bob Thornton. And there's just some, and Billy Bob Thornton is fucking hilarious in it. <laughs> There's a moment where he's just like letting them know little things. He's like, hey, do you guys notice something in this shot? And it's just a shot of him like just sitting on a chair and the camera's just pushing in. They're like, no, what's going on? He's like, he's got a boner. <laughs> and he's like, what? They're like, yeah, I have an erection right now in this shot. He's like, and you guys used the take where I had an erection. It's right there. And it's like, and <laughs> so he's just like pulling the rug under, under stuff that is like. And then at one point, I don't know if you know, there's a famous story about, um, do you know the Roderick James thing? You know. Okay, so if you watch Coen Brother movie credits, mm-hmm. you will notice that uh, there is a credit. There's an editor that they work with named Roderick Janes. Okay. Uh, and so, or Roderick Jane. And, um, and when Fargo was nominated for an Academy Award mm-hmm. for Best Editing, which was the first time one of their movies had been nominated for, I think, an Oscar at all, but that category, they had to call the Academy and say, so here's the thing. Um, Roderick won't be at the ceremony because Roderick doesn't exist because we're Roderick. <laughs> um, because they uh, just didn't want their names to be in every category in the movie. Yeah, like, it, probably, it probably seems weird if we're just like 
produced by this by this by so they came up with an alias so that way their names weren't all over the credits yeah and that's what they came up with with his name Roderick Jane so they they were actually trying to get them to let them hire an actor to play Rudder Jane at the Academy Awards that could accept the or at least sit in the seat or whatever right yeah the Academy wouldn't let them because of the whole Marlon Brando thing when Marlon Brando like hired the person to play the native person like two decades earlier so yeah. they they had a very strict policy on no fake people <laughs> Uh, but and so that that so unfortunately because of that the secret kind of like leaked out that Roderick wasn't a real person, but during the commentary, uh, Billy Bob Thornton tells the story. He's like, "Hey, I forgot to tell you guys, I ran into your editor the other day," and they're like, "Roderick," it's like, "Yeah," it's like, "What happened?" And he tells this story about <laughs> that he just and and it's funny because. I appreciated it as a nerd because I know Roderick James is not real. Yeah. <laughs> and so I know that he's just taking the piss and amusing the Coens. But on the other level, if you're just listening to this commentary track and you don't know that, you think he's telling you a real story. <laughs> like, they never, like, start laughing and pull the rug under going, ha, 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 that's not, couldn't possibly yeah. be true. He just tells a story and then they move on in the conversation. <laughs> And I won't ruin it. For anyone that wants to know what that conversation is, you got to listen to the commentary track. And it is worth it. Uh, it's, a, it's an obscure one because that movie is not probably one of the movies they're remembered for or thought of. No, yeah. It's one of my favorites of theirs because yeah. it is such a weird movie and I really, really do adore it for reasons I probably don't. Tony Shalhoub has this amazing character and he plays his lawyer. <laughs> This fast-talking lawyer that's amazing. Uh, but I'm trying to think of other commentary tracks. I haven't listened to a commentary track in forever. Yeah, it's been a long time for me, too. I, th- I think they've kind of gone out of vogue. Yeah. I, re- I remember there being, like, some fun ones uh, where, like, I mean, I would have been young when I started getting into them. Uh, so, like, Anchorman or something where they have, like, the whole cast on there or whatever. And just, they're just joking around and not really paying attention to the movie at all. Yeah, I wish they would actually, I wish the studios or whoever, like, distributors would actually take the commentary tracks. So here's a free idea, movie people, and make podcasts out of them. Brilliant. You know? Because, yeah. like, you don't really need... To, I mean, you can watch them along with the movie. I'm sure they're referencing things as it goes along that you probably want to pay attention to. But it's also the kind of thing where I'm like, I sure, I'm sure most commentary tracks, you can just listen to, like, a podcast. And I think I would definitely listen to more. I mean, I'm sure yeah. I could rip them and do them that way. But it would just be great if, like, distributors for... Every distributor or studio or whatever... Own. yeah. Just pop them out, put them out as, as like, additional content that... So if you want to rent the movie on iTunes or, or VOD, you can listen along that way. Yeah, you just go to like Universal Studios commentary podcast or whatever, and it just lets them off. It, it would Done. not. It would cost them server space. Yeah, that's about it. And some like fucking college student going through and digitizing them all. I mean, they're already digitized. And yeah. Just like uploading them, really. Yeah. I. It's not. It would not be that expensive for them to to release these things. It would be nothing. So there's your free idea for me today, movie world. <laughs> put up the goddamn commentaries. Make your millions. <laughs> no, like put them up for free. Yeah. I mean, or charge fifteen cents or whatever. It's like I think you get one advertiser on there. Put them up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just it. Put put an advertiser. Put yeah. Put put monetary value by advertising. You know, throughout them, if you want to, <laughs> but uh, but also it's the kind of thing where it's just like you you could potentially get people to sync up and and 
and watch rent, along. Yeah. Well, when you're renting it on on or streaming, because that's the problem with so many streaming services, like the. Mm-hmm. the Bonus features don't come with them. Yeah, so Netflix, no, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, but it's like, but you could get the podcast mm-hmm. anyway. I'm just saying, free ideas. All right, well, thanks for coming over, man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we we could pop your magnolia cherry. Yeah, what a, what a marathon. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sticking it up. <laughs> Let's all go to the Thanks for joining us for Magnolia. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at LonJeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lot.